You talk about how in the olden days you would have to build up a rapport, prove your worth, forge some trust and also get on the phone. You've complained about how modern journalists just don't ring people. How did you earn the trust of Rafael Benitez? Um, It's difficult to say, really. I think it's just by making sure you're at his press conferences regularly. I saw him on a number of informal occasions, uh, dinners, you know, so where, you know, I, I was sat next to him and chatting away to him. I actually believed uh, I was a Liverpool supporter when he started talking to me. <laughs> I, I, I had to put it right on that one. Uh, and I said, well, maybe that you know, that is a, a compliment uh, to the quality of my impartial copy that you have. You are the Jamie Carragher of sports <laughs> journalism. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I've texted him many times since, you know, saying that I think you do a great job at Everton. I don't know, really. I think you, you can only earn trust by, you know, so not, Betraying confidences of you know, managers to tell you something in confidence, and by you know sort of writing in a fair and honest manner, you've got to be critical. Of course, you are because you know sometimes you know things don't go well for football clubs, and you've got to reflect that honestly and candidly. Uh, and we do that, Diaco. But I just think as long as we're not overly cynical, that that, that can work in your favour. So. I don't know. I probably have to ask Rafa one day. Yeah, <laughs> so please. Why that's the case. But, uh, uh, but yeah, you know, he, he seems to you know think I'm all right, which is uh, which is good. Which jolly is well done. Um, I read Nick Davis, the the chap who broke the phone hacking of Minnie Dowler's phone. That story he wrote a book called Flat Earth News, which I, you may have right. read. Uh, and the take home point for me was that the modern newspaper is three times as big, and you have to uh, you have three times less, a third of the time to fill it in. And that, I think, works. So the modern day newspaper is full of PR and full of what I call client journalism. But the best uh, sports supplements are the ones I love reading. Henry Winter, because he lets the guy talk. Reading Jamie Carragher, his work with Chris Bascom is sensational. I don't know if you've read his Greatest Games book or heard the show. I have, yes. Probably enjoyed it. I think it's it's a game changer. Because I think the modern yeah. football fan likes to know both the psychology, the tactics and the, the uh, prep side of things. And Jamie has, uh, apart from the spit, which was not becoming of him, yeah. but it's been great having him. I know they've tried to... What do you think of the double act with Gary Neville? I think it's for ratings, but they do like each other. Um, they, they do, yeah. But, you know, so Cara, I've got an awful lot of time for. Again, you know, so go back a long way with... And uh, I remember, I forget what I wrote about once, oh, a long, long time ago, where I wrote something about um, about Jamie, where I said, you know, clearly he's a very intelligent and articulate, you know, sort of individual. And, you know, so people might have raised an eyebrow at the time because his accent was so thick back then that it was virtually impenetrable. Um, <laughs> and, you know, he, he got in touch with me and he, he was genuinely touched that, you know, so I described him in such terms. But, you know, clearly he showed uh, in his work for, for Sky that he is, you know, so... It's all very well being able to analyse a game, you know, so clearly and methodically, but then being able to transmit that analysis uh, in easy terms for the casual observer to be able to embrace and to be able to, you know, sort of take on board is a real skill. Uh, And he's got that. And he's always been an absolute, you know, you talk about Rafa being in there, you know, so Jamie has, you know, so all his life watches absolutely everything, reads absolutely everything. I mean, we couldn't get away with anything in the echo without, you know, sort of passing him, you know, so he would absolutely scrutinise every word (laughs) uh, and and be aware of it and make you aware of it as well if he wasn't happy with what you'd written. Uh, But no, he's absolutely top class. And that book, um, because a lot of the games in there are very historical matches. Uh, I was there, of course, in 1989 when Liverpool lost to Arsenal last match of the season. Uh, in a moment that'll probably never be repeated again. But 
I actually learned you know, elements of that game that I hadn't realized and hadn't known. Uh, so, you know, we're still educating people 30 odd years after the event. So, yeah, it, it was a great book. And, you know, so it's one of my favorites. I mean, there's an awful lot, to be honest. I mean, we could go on forever about, you know, sort of football literature. Uh, Tony Cascarino's full time, absolutely adore uh, because of, you know, so just the honesty and yeah. the candor uh, you know, sort of that book. Uh, Pete Davis all played out, you know, so, you know, about the, uh, the, the World Cup in 1990, uh, you know, in similar terms. It's good now that we're getting good football literature because for me, in the past, boxing was always the sport that produced the best, best literature. Oh, yeah, uh, but because you know, that so was, there was, there was uh, the Norman Mailer stuff. It was a literary exactly, genre. Exactly, Hugh McElvaney, you know, so there was always like, you know, so the best literature was always about boxing. But that seems to be changing now. You know, so you're getting as much good quality stuff now written about it, about football. And it, it's very much a trend for the better. So I'm delighted about that. I certainly wouldn't you know, so hold mine up as having any great literary merit. Uh, but I just think it's uh, full of good stories. And you know, so hopefully the kind of stuff that people can enjoy. And like I say, you know, the feedback's been pleasant and been pleasing. So I'm delighted with that. A grand old team to report uh, out in paperback now. Matt Dickinson has been very critical of boxing as a sport. He thinks it should be phased out. I agree with him. In about 30 seconds, can you defend the indefensible? Why should I care about Tyson Fury versus Anthony Joshua? Or an easier question, why should I care about Tony Bellew? If you don't care about it, don't watch it. It's as simple as that. It's a choice. Um, you know, the, the argument that Hugh McElbany, you know, sort of basically advocates it better than anybody, and he does it shortly after, you know, Rudy Borsett on the tragic death of Johnny Owen uh, in a boxing ring. And, you know, it's, it's a, an argument that, you know, if you were to try and ban boxing, it wouldn't go away. It wouldn't be banned. Course, it would go yeah. underground. Uh, and it would still happen. Therefore, you know, so the, the better side of it, I suppose, is to try and make the sport as safe as it could possibly be, or as safe as any sport can be, where obviously the object of the exercise is to try and, you know, sort of render, you know, your, your participants, you know, sort of unconscious. Uh, I understand why people don't like the sport. I can understand why it's a sport that, you know, sort of upsets so many people. Uh, but statistically, you know, you, you get more tragedies and more deaths uh, in, in other sports. Sports than, than you do boxing, you know, so motor racing, for example, and there's never, you know, a, a call for that to be banned. Um, and you look at what it can do, you know, so at grassroots level yeah. uh, for uh, inner city kids, you know, so people, you know, so don't have anywhere to go and express themselves, uh, you know, so to go and get off the streets and try and get away from uh, ending up, you know, sort of leading, you know, sort of lives, lives of crime. And Tony Bellew articulates that in his own book quite well at the moment about uh, everybody has a plan until you get punched in the face is the rather uh, lively title. Uh, and I've been halfway through that at the moment and thoroughly enjoying it. So, yeah, it, it's a very, very tough, tough sport to defend. Uh, but I think it does more good and introduces more discipline and introduces more positive qualities into the lives of its participants than it does the negatives and, you know, it's tough to defend. I know, I get that, I understand it, but I passionately believe that it does improve people's lives for the better, more than damages lives. Funnily, that's, that's, the best I can do. that's exactly, very good, thank you. That is exactly what Dicko learned, because he, someone reached out to him and said, you've got to come down to this gym, because I'll tell you about the human side of boxing. And then you've got Eddie Hearn, yeah. source of the memes, and a very rich man. Why won't Eddie Hearn yeah. move into football? Because he could own a football club. <laughs> he could do, but I'm guessing he's just an absolute, you know, sort of football, so boxing nut. He loves his boxing. Uh, he went to you know, school with Frank Lampard, famously. 
well, yeah, and that, that, that have some football involvement as well at yep. one stage, was it? Yeah, so you know, maybe he got his fingers burned with that and thought, no, no, if I'm going to make money, the way to do it's in boxing because no one makes money out of football. You know, so it's only absolutely mega rich individuals that suddenly get into football rather than the other way around. So uh, maybe that's the, the, the reason he does it. But Eddie Hearn promotes boxing very, very successfully and, uh, and a very engaging guy. He seems to do it very, very well. So, you know, so I don't think there's any chance that's going to change anytime soon. And I think since we're talking business, this is a perfect time to suggest to any fan visiting the Liverpool area, perhaps you're in Victoria Street and you need somewhere to put your bags and your head after a heavy night in Liverpool, why not go to the Dixie Dean Hotel? <laughs> you can't stay anywhere better. I mean, uh, I have to say that because my wife is the guest relations director. Uh, my wife is Dixie Dean's granddaughter. It's a wonderful place and it, it was part of an idea that Signature Living, who own a number of hotels in Liverpool, had uh, a couple of years ago now. Uh, they launched the Shankly Hotel. Uh, it's, it's a great fanfare. Uh, Bill Shankly's grandson, Chris Carline, was heavily involved and had lots and lots of artefacts and memorabilia uh, placed around the other uh, building and huge big murals and you know, inspirational speeches from Shankly dotted around the place. It was almost like a, a tribute to Bill Shankly and Bill Shankly and Dixie Dean were big pals they were big friends um, you know so certainly uh, after Dixie you know finished his playing days and he was you know so retired and Bill Shankly likewise when he finished managing uh, they would often pop around you know have cups of tea with each other and it became very very friendly so it just seemed it made perfect sense really to create an Everton you know version of the Shankly Hotel and what better figure to use than the greatest footballer that ever pulled on a royal blue shirt for Everton and I can say that without any fear of contradiction uh, you know so some fans will suggest that Alan Ball is maybe you know so second in that list but nobody will ever doubt that Dixie Dean, Dixie Dean is the greatest player that ever played for Everton so to create a hotel and uh, paying tribute to him and it's a wonderful old atmospheric uh, building used to be a law court at one stage. It looks beautiful and historic. And the job that's being done in transforming it into a hotel is so sympathetic. Uh, there are statues inside of Alan Ball, of Howard Kendall, and of Dixie himself. There are all manner of uh, images on the ceilings, on the walls, all very, very tastefully uh, tastefully done. And it's just it's a wonderful place just to have a little wander around. Uh, you know, Even if you're not staying there, just pop in and have a drink and just uh, have a look and just uh, soak in a little bit of Everton heritage, a little bit of Everton history it's being added to all the time i've seen my wife melanie works uh, and she's more than happy to talk to visitors about her granddad who she lived with until uh, until his passing when she was 13 they were her partners in crime uh, you know so she was at home all the time with him and so she's got some great stories to tell about that so yeah it's it's, it's a great place it's a, a wonderful hotel it survived the covid pandemic which a lot of you know so hotels haven't which we're very very you know so pleased by and uh, yeah if you're ever down victoria street neck of liverpool pop your head in DixieDeanHotel.co.uk. I just looked to see if I could get a room uh, around uh, this weekend as it goes out. Everton Watford, the Zed Cars Derby. Uh, the luxury suite sleeps four and each, it's about £105 per head. The Wi-Fi is free. The toiletries are free. There is also an executive suite that sleeps eight. God, what? Who? Eight? What, if, if you're a family of eight? No, no, I mean, this is, a, this is a, a policy that they've adopted from the, the Shankly Hotel over the road, which if you watched the Grand Party Hotel on uh, BBC, which was a series uh, recently focused on the Shankly, and it became 
almost like a, a haven for, um, for for hen parties, stag parties, for large groups yes, 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 of yes, young, yes. younger people. And, uh, you know, so those, those rooms at the Dixie cater for that kind of, you know, sort of groups of lads who want to go and watch a football match at a weekend, seven or eight of them that don't mind, you know, so all sharing the same room. They're big rooms, by the way, trust me, and they're very luxurious. So you're not like dormitories on top of each other. Uh, but the Dixie's getting away from that a little bit, you know, so whereas the, the Shankly, as, you know, that BBC title suggested, is the Grand Party Hotel, the Dixie uh, Signature Living are try, trying to promote as a slightly more upmarket version, you know, so a little bit classier. So while it does actually, you know, cater for, you know, so party groups, they're in the minority, you know, so it's largely, you know, so for people that just want to go and have a, a luxurious night in a historic hotel that pays tribute to the greatest footballer that ever played for Everton Football Club. And we know that of all the cities in the UK, Liverpool is the best to party in. I don't have personal experience of that, but a lot of people moved to Liverpool just to go to see the nightlife in the super club era of the 2000s. Yeah, I mean, you know what? There's absolutely no shadow of a doubt about that. I mean, I have lived in Liverpool all my life. I adore the place. I absolutely hate the, uh, the, the flack it used to get in the 80s and the 90s, people looking at the, uh, the negative side of it. But this is literally the day I'm talking now is a Thursday, and I've been down in London for three days. And uh, I was down there, and London was great, as, as it always is, but it was relatively quiet. Uh, we had a couple of meals in a Broadway market at the back of Hackney, uh, Hackney Street, nice. Hackney High Street. And it was lively, it was, it was decent. But we got the train back last night, my wife and myself. Uh, we got off at Lime Street, and we just missed the connection for our Liverpool Central train back up to Formby, where we live. So we thought, oh, we'll go and have a pint uh, uh, in Liverpool instead. This is a Wednesday night at 10 o'clock. The city was bouncing. Yes. <laughs> All you can hear is uh, sounds of songs and you know, so people enjoying themselves. And people, there was a couple sat next to us from Ireland who were at a table next to us outside the uh, the globe where we were sat, and they were you know sort of telling us what a great time they'd had and where they were staying. It wasn't the Dixie, unfortunately, but they were staying elsewhere. And I just thought. This is great. This is sort of getting back to what it was like. And the guy said he'd been down to Matthew Street, obviously home of the Beatles. The and Matthew Club, Street is always absolutely bouncing. Uh, you can't move in there the best of times. But obviously during lockdown and in the tentative stages coming out of lockdown, it was strange. It was very, very quiet. I mean, I went to watch the England and Scotland game there during the European Championships. And it was it was subdued. It was quieter than it had been for obvious reasons. But it's getting back to how it was. It's getting back to, you know, sort of the... Uh, the, the pre-COVID days. So, yeah, you're absolutely spot on. Liverpool is a party city like none other. So if you get the opportunity, make sure you visit. Thank you so much. You've, yes, you've done your job properly. It's like you work for the Echo or something. That's great. That's a ri- So you've given me a sales pitch for boxing and a sales pitch for Liverpool. Now I'm going to have to ask the £64 million question. Um, you've got to compile your best Everton team that you have watched while you've been covering them. But... Can you do it in an anecdote style? So if I start you off with Neville Southall, whom you call the only world-class player that you've reported on, do you have any Nev anecdotes? Where where do you want to start? I've got loads of Nev anecdotes. Um, He's the man that um, was very, very responsible for giving footballers the nicknames of the football club, and he was brutal with the nicknames. You know, so he would would slaughter people. And I took it as almost like a compliment that I was uh, I was embraced by him. That, you know, so I was given a nickname, TJ. For people who are a little, little bit older, you know, so TJ Hooker was um, a, a policeman who was played by William Shatner, I think, and um, he had just a little, you know, sort of dark brown quiff. And you know, so my hair 
dark brown, got a bit of a quiff. And that was enough for him to call me TJ. <laughs> and even now he still calls me TJ. Oh, wow. I did a, a column I, I did a column with Neville uh, for many, many years. And, you know, I'd ring him on a Thursday night. This was because the, uh, the column went in the Saturday Football Echo. And he was always, as ever, oh, what do you want, CJ? You know, what are you ringing me now for? <laughs> and he'd always be grumpy as anything. And then would keep me on the phone for about an hour, hour and a half, telling me great stuff. And you suddenly start hearing some unusual noises in the background. And you'd think, I won't be too graphic here. But you'd hear, like, uh, like a bit of running water. So, what are you doing yes. now? I'm on the bog, I'm on the bog, CJ. Just keep talking. I'm thinking, oh god, right, okay. Well, another splash. I'm in the bath now, CJ. You know, so keep going. So that's Nev. You know, so thank you for that been, image. Uh, like, yeah, slightly, um, slightly quick. Two, I've spoken. I've spoken with Daniel Story, who has had a very similar experience to you. Daniel helped him write Mind Games, which is also out in yeah. paperback. And then there's the Bin Man Chronicles, which is his first memoir. Yeah. Who are you going to put across the back? Wow. Um, to be honest, you're talking about the era in which I've reported, and I did do the final game of the 1986-87 season for the Daily Post uh, when Everson played Tottenham. And, uh, Derek Manfield scored the winner. That was in one-one nil. So I can probably include, you know, sort of the majority of that title-winning team. I'd probably go across the back four. Gary Stevens would have to be the right back. Dave Watson, who's always not always, but quite often overlooked when people talk about Everton legends and Everton icons. And he absolutely is a 24 carat Everton legend. He works for Newcastle now. He's uh, scouting. But he would play alongside Kevin Ratcliffe. Who's uh, you know the most successful skipper in Everton's history? Uh, a man I see a lot nowadays. Uh, for some reason, I always seem to bump into when we go to entry for the Grand National. Oh, good. Uh, always end up having a pint with him there. That's his great, great company. You know, so great value. And then left backs. You know, you you would normally think that well, you'd have to go for psychopaths, maybe. Uh, Pat Banden, how that is for people that don't follow Everton. And uh, yeah, he is absolutely you know so deserving of that nickname. But I would probably go for somebody a little bit more recent, and that's Leighton Baines, because uh, Leighton Baines is one of the best modern fullbacks, I think, you know, so of the recent here. Everyone talks about Ray Wilson being Everson's greatest ever left back, and I, unfortunately I didn't see him play. That was it before I started watching. But Leighton Baines I've seen plenty of, and absolutely top class, um, you know, more assists, I think, than any of the fullback in the Premier League here. That's statistically speaking. Wonderful free kicks. He scored those two at West Ham where he pinged one in one corner and the next one in the opposite corner. Uh, and uh, an excellent penalty taker as well. Uh, one, he's scored more penalties for Everson than anybody else in the club's history. So he's the, the one nod to more recent times. But I think, you know, so defensively, I'd have to go Gary Stevens, Dave Watson, Kevin Ratcliffe and Leighton Baines. That is brilliant. I'm just looking up the title of Pat van der Howe's memoir, which is called My Autobiography. I don't know why I didn't guess that. Although he seems to have written two. There's Psychopath uh, and then yeah. van der Howe's autobiography. So the autobiography was 2015. And yeah. Psychopath, legend or madman, uh, apparently came out in 2012. No, no. I mean, it, it's, it's a great read, by the way. And some of the stories in it are her curling uh, certainly from his time in South Africa when he was involved in some very, very dubious activities uh, which you know almost cost him his life on, uh, on one or two occasions. Um, so, yes, he's an interesting character as Pat, but he's actually back working for Everton again now. Uh, he found himself in a dark place not so long ago and Everton, as they do, you know, so, so very, very frequently. Uh, it's a family club. It's, you know, they advertise themselves as a family club and Everton's work in the community, as you suggested earlier, is absolutely, you know, so exemplary. 
and they've they brought Pat back into the fold, and he's now working at Everton in the community, doing so very, very successfully. Seems to have conquered all his personal demons, and is in, in a good place again. But I think you know, he cleverly used that because it, it's obviously the obvious psychopath, psychopath. It's obviously you know sort of quite a, you know an obvious like little you know line to use. But he was also absolutely ruthless on a football pitch, you know. So he was a very, very hard man. Um, so yeah, you know, he used that a lot to you know sort of a bit of psychology, you know, sort of to get inside players' heads as well on occasions. Uh, but yeah, probably have a go at me now. I'll get him in here. <laughs> I'll get him in. Uh, one of one of ten famous Belgians, Pat Van den Howe. Um, but I'd love to. I'm, I'm trying to get more pros in. I've had Ricky Hill and um, Buster Tut, and also George Scott. I had George Scott in here, the last Shankly boy. Right. Yeah, yeah. But we do, I do need some more footballers. So I might have to tap into your contacts book and get some what haps what haps on. Um, I grew up knowing that Andre Kanchelskis played for Man U and Everton. You tell a story yeah. about how players would shake him by the hand and go, God, Andre, you're good. So you've got him on one wing. Who's Who accompanies him in the midfield? Oh, wow. Uh, again, players that I've reported on. It's, uh, it's, it's tough, really. Andre Kanchalskis would have to be in there because he was only at Everton for like a season and a half. But that one season was something special. Dislocated his shoulder very early on last season, so missed out a large chunk of it. But came back in again and scored 16 league goals. And when you were talking there, that Atlantic dose about you know, sort of players shaking their head in disbelief. There was one pre-season friendly at Wrexham where um, I think he scored four goals. I was in one five nil, and I was stood in the days when you were allowed to do such things outside the dressing room uh, as the players trooped out and. Every Every single one were just like raising their eyebrows or just shaking their heads saying, wow, Andre tonight. What was Andre like? Oh, my God, how good was Andre? Uh, and, and he was, you know, so when he was in the mood, he was absolutely unplayable. And uh, for a large proportions of that season, he was unplayable. So who would play on the opposite flank? I mean, Anders Limpar had, you know, so a great spell at Everson, you know, so during that era, but wasn't really consistent enough, you know, so... Andy Hinch played a lot of his time in left midfield, and you know, so he had you know, so a wonderful left peg and was responsible for so much of Duncan Ferguson's success. We've not been graced with you know, so legendary you know, so left-sided players since Kevin Sheedy hung up his boots. Like I say, I reported at the end of that '87 season, and Kevin Sheedy carried on playing for Everton until 1991. So I'm claiming sheets all day long Good. because he's one of the great, he's one of the great underrated uh, sort of players, I believe. 97 league goals he scored for Everton, 97 goals from midfield, and he didn't take that many penalties. And you know, if you look at the Everton team of that era and you look at the number of goals that he created, it's absolutely phenomenal. Neville himself described uh, Kevin Sheedy, Neville Southall, as um, as being like Everton's very own Lionel Messi. Uh, and okay, Neville could be you know so proud to be hyperbole at times, uh, but I understood where he was you know so coming from. Sheeds did things that other players you know so couldn't. Funnily enough, I saw him literally about half an hour ago, just you know, wandering down you know, so uh, round the corner with a suit on, you know, so heading from St Peter's Church towards the grapes. Whether he'd been to a funeral funeral or something, I don't know. Uh, but no, Sheeds absolutely you know so. Peerless. So, you know, so because I saw him towards the tail end of his career when I was reporting, Sheets has to be on the opposite flank. What a partnership that would be. Kanchalskis one side, Sheets the other. Oh, that's scary. You'd almost win something, especially in a Rafa Benitez team. <laughs> um, <laughs> two midfielders, um, you're sport for choice. Completely sport for choice. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm terrified of missing somebody out here trying to think about... Um, and the nominees of... are... Well, I don't... Who played in the 84 final? If you look at that era, I mean, Reed and Bracewell were the two that were absolutely so perfect for each other. They dovetailed magnificently. Uh, but if you, you know, you're fast-forwarding uh, a little time, Joe Parkinson, you know, sort of was excellent uh, until injury, you know, so absolutely, you know, sort of demolished his career. Gareth Barry was, you know, sort of a hugely, you know, unsung hero, uh, you know, for Everton. And one of uh, Roberto Martinez's absolutely shrewdest signings Paul Gascoigne played for Everton. He did, but he was like way past his best. He had one great game against Leighton Orient in the FA Cup. Mm. Uh, scored one goal away at Bolton, but no, he was he was a shadow, unfortunately, of the of the genius he had been. And he was a genius, by the way. Uh, saw him playing for Tottenham, you know, so I could have seen many times you know, when he was absolutely wonderful, inspirational. But again, it's sad, really. But you're going back, you know, sort of to the year when Everton were last truly, really, really successful. Uh, and I was able to report on a handful of those games. Uh, so it would have to be Peter Reid. And Paul Bracewell was injured you know, for a lot of that you know, sort of 86 campaign, but came back. Wasn't maybe quite the same player again. So can I, can I mix it up a little bit and have a player in there who actually largely played off front, but also played a little bit of his career in central midfield, Adrian Heath. Adrian Heath was like, you know, again... One of one of those players that's overlooked a little bit because everyone looks at the end of that eighty four eighty five season and sees Gray and Sharp playing together because Adrian Heath did his cruciate in December, uh, but you know he played in the uh, the FA Cup final of nineteen eighty four in midfield. Um, you know, so Sharp and Gray obviously played up front and he played a lot of his earlier career in midfield. And you know, occasionally gets unfairly overlooked. So it might not be the best balanced you know sort of midfield partnership. I'm not bothered. I'm not bothered. I just want one players who are great and Adrian <laughs> Heath is great. So, that's wicked, and uh, that has made me go back to Brian Viner's book and Simon Hart's book and your own book. Um, yeah. There have been a lot of rumours that Romelu Lukaku is coming back to the Premier League because um, yeah. the Serie A is all over the place at the moment. If he does, yeah. then Chelsea will play Everton, and Everton yeah. will have to welcome back one of its finest strikers of uh, the modern yeah. era. Would you pick Lukaku over... Others and would you put him with someone like Lineker? It's it's funny. Well, I, I didn't report on Lineker, unfortunately. You know, so he had left before my career started. Even though I did see him play as a supporter, but it's funny you should mention this because literally this morning I was asked by uh, one of my colleagues, Chris Beasley, who's putting together you know, so Everton's greatest Premier League players, and each of our writers has to give the you know nomination. And he's basing it on the fact that, you know, Hamish Rodriguez looks like he's been, you know, moving on from Everton, even though he's, you know, had a, a decent enough season, I thought, but has been a great, iconic player, as was David Ginola, as was Paul Gascoigne, uh, that, you know, all played, you know, so fleetingly for Everton. So he's asking who has been the greatest player of the Everton Premier League era. And if Samuel Esso was another one he threw in there. And I was thinking, well, no, if I'm going to name a player, I want a player who has been great in his time at Everton rather than great for Tottenham or great for Newcastle United and Tottenham and then, you know, came to Everton at the end of their career. So I named Romelu Lukaku as, uh, you know, the greatest player I'd seen in the Premier League era play for Everton. And, you know, I gave nods to uh, Leighton Baines, to Nigel Martin, who David Moyes always said was his greatest ever signing. Uh, You could argue Tim Cahill as well, who was like, such a bargain. But I just thought Romelu Lukaku 
He's ever since high Premier League goal scorer, and he won't get a good reception when he comes back because he made it perfectly clear during his time at Everton that he believed he was destined for greater things. And every time he went away on international duty, uh, he'd make you know so you know quotes to that effect. But power, pace, uh, great finisher. Touch could be a bit dodgy on occasions, but he's improved that. You know, so uh, you know certainly during his time in Italy, and I just think he's great. I mean, when he first signed for Everton. Uh, I almost had a bit of a man crush on him. I just thought he was so great. I loved watching him. I was like being like a, a supportive again. And uh, yeah, Romelu Lukaku would be, you know, sort of my centre forward. And uh, when he comes back to Goodison Park, I do hope he gets a decent re- reception. I suspect he won't, uh, but that doesn't diminish the fact that for me, you know, so he's one of the greatest you know, sort of players I've seen play in the Premier League for Everton. I'm just having a look at when the fixture is. Ah, the 15th of December, that match week. Uh, that is the Chelsea-Everton. And then it's very, very late in the season. Uh, Everton-Chelsea is uh, the end of April. So that is yeah. if Romelu Lukaku does go. I think Mino Raiola will have a say about that. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So who, who um, cowers in Lukaku's shadow as a number 10? Well, I mean, the, the obvious one that you could throw in there would be obviously, you know, a, a fit and firing Duncan Ferguson, because obviously those two playing together, oh my word, that would be absolutely unplayable. Big man and bigger man. Actually, oh wow, there's a, there was a spell in the 1990s when Stan Collymore was linked with a move to Everton, and uh, in, in the end he didn't, he ran across to Liverpool instead, and the same thing was said then, those two wouldn't fire all that frequently, but when they did, wow, they'd be unplayable. Uh, and I suspect that would be the same with Ferguson and Lukaku. But uh, I'm not going to go for Ferguson. Uh, the, the obvious choice would be the absolute force of nature uh, that was Wayne Rooney when he first came through in uh, 2002. Uh, yeah, yes, I remember the name. Because oh, <laughs> um, I, I, well, I, my, my first you know, sort of knowledge of Wayne Rooney, is, uh, I used to go down to Belfield every morning uh, Monday morning, I speak to Colin Harvey about the under, under 19s and under 17s, uh, how they got on at the weekend. Colin would give me like a quick positive report. And uh, one game, Everton had been beaten 2 1. And he goes, Yeah, yeah, we got beat, didn't play particularly well. Uh, like called Rooney, scored the goal. I said, Rooney, Rooney, didn't know that name, Colin. He goes, No, nah, you wasn't lad, he's 14. I say, 15. And I said, 15? He's playing for the under 19s. And Colin didn't, you know, sort of dispense praise easily. He went a little bit misty eyed. And he goes, oh, yeah, son. He goes, this kid, he's, uh, he's like a young Dalgleish, but quicker of thought and quicker across the floor. Jesus. And I just, like, my eyes must have gone, like, you know, so saucers when he said this. And he obviously realised what he said. And I'll paraphrase. He said, and don't put that in your bloody newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 so I didn't. But obviously kept tabs on Wayne Rooney. And it didn't take long because everybody was talking about him before very long. And he had that incredible, you know, sort of spell in the youth cup. In um, two thousand and two thousand and one, yeah, I'll be I'll be writing about and, and it. So, yeah. Oh, so so when he came, you know, so into the Everton first team, it was just so refreshing. He just did things that you just weren't expecting. I mean, everyone remembers the goal against Arsenal, but the goal at Leeds the following week, Everton had won at Leeds since nineteen fifty one. It was an absolutely wonderful goal. He just did things that you weren't expecting, and it sounds a bit weird to say, but I believe that the Wayne Rooney. That played for Everton and played for England in the European Championships in 2004 
was a more exciting Wayne Rooney to watch than the one that was at Manchester United who became their record goal scorer of all time because he had to fit more into the team you know sort of ethic there uh, he wasn't maybe indulged as much as he was at Everton and clearly you know still a legendary footballer uh, but I just think at Everton he was a bit more of a free spirit uh, than he was at Manchester United where he was a little bit more rigidly confined and still scored you know, r- ridiculous numbers of goals and some of the best goals in Premier League history you know the, the overhead yeah. against Manchester City, notwithstanding. Uh, but I just think that little era, you know, so between 2002 and 2004, Wayne Rooney was just something else to enjoy. And, you know, he was still a very effective football when he came back for his swan song uh, Goodison uh, in the, the Ronald Koeman era. Yes, the 10 number 10s era. Exactly, yeah, exactly. But not quite the uh, the, the same you know, so joie de vivre, the, the, the same expressiveness. But that little era then was like something else. So, you know, a young Rooney alongside, you know, sort of peak Romelu Lukaku. Oh, I'd pay to watch that every single week. Oh, and I'm, I'm annoyed because we don't have time to discuss your disco in Italy with Mike Walker, the celebrations about the <laughs> FA Cup win in Dublin, uh, Walter Smith's meltdown when Duncan Ferguson was sold behind his back, the new stadium in the Farhad Moshiri era. But, I do want to finish just by having some fun. Uh, your book, yeah. A Grand Old Team to Report, is available and paperback now. Also, as we speak, a very good price in hardback and Kindle. Uh, you'd prefer people to buy it. Uh, and we're also talking on the birthday of Billy Bingham, uh, one of Everton's greatest ever players and managers. Uh, so happy birthday. Is he still with us? He is, yes. Uh, he suffers from dementia uh, these days. But yeah, he's, he's currently Everton's oldest you know, surviving footballer. 90 years old and um, league champion with Everton in 1963. Uh, played 22 of the first 23 games of that season. And came close to achieving or you know, replicating that as a manager in 1974-75. That was the first season I ended up watching Everton or started watching Everton. And... Uh, in true Everton tradition, we managed to go three points clear with about five games to go and finished fourth, uh, having lost to Luton Town, who got relegated, Carlisle United, who got relegated, uh, and we're two and a half time against Sheffield United, who finished about eighth and lost 3 2. So we, uh, we probably didn't deserve to win the league that year, but it was close. And so, yeah, you know, poor old Billy came quite close to you know, achieving a, a rare double. Uh, becoming a league champion as a player and a manager with the same club. Well, I listened to a, a podcast, a, a conversation you had this morning, and you jokingly said, oh, I want to write the Blue Bible. Well, you've got to write it now. I, I will commission someone to do the Watford Bible, the Old Testament, pre-Second World War, the New Testament, post-Second World War, and then you can get just get Nev to write the, the Gospel according to Nev. <laughs> and he, but, and he can only refer to his teammates by nicknames and he can't tell us who the nicknames were for that would be very entertaining I did a feature in the Football Echo many many years ago where you know carried a lot of those names uh, Pie Man Village uh, Floppy Ninja who else can I, re- can I remember they were, they were very very weird and wonderful but that was Neville you know so what goes on in his head I wouldn't yeah. like to know it's a hell of a head. Um, to finish, um, because I like to remind people how old they are, this Wayne Rooney game against Leeds, Rooney was actually a super sub. Um, and I've got the 11 here. I don't know if you were at Elland Road that night. I, I certainly was. Uh, Saturday afternoon, I think it was. Yeah. Fab. yeah. Uh, fun fact, Nick Barmby played for Leeds that day. Oh, really? I, I didn't, I'd forgotten that. As, well, it says, as <laughs> did and Nigel Martin was an unused sub. But can you name, as far as you can... The Everton 11. 
who started that game. Oh, wow. Um, We're in 2002. Autumn 2002. Well, presumably Richard Wright was in goal. Richard Wright, Because yeah. uh, that, was one, that was one of uh, David Moyes' first signs. Tony Hibbert's at left back, uh, right back. Yep. Nigerian. Oh, wow. Yeah, Joseph Yobo. Yobo. Um, and then two Mark solid Hedges English pros. Two solid English pros. Um, at centre-back. At the back. 2002. Alan Stubbs was that? Yep. So, and the other we've mentioned earlier, caretaker manager. Oh, Hunzi. Hunzi played left-back, yeah. Right, ah, okay. okay. Um, and then we have the England under-21 manager, current. Lee Carsley, top man, Cars. Yeah. Oh, really? Uh, I, I'm hoping to speak to him for my book about the Youth Cup because he did so uh, well at City. You, you reckon he's going to yeah. do really well? Okay. I hope so, yeah. I mean, uh, I've spoken to him, you know, sort of recent, no, up and down in recent years. And he's just one of those, like, really good guys. Uh, you know, so I like him a lot. Uh, you know, he did very, very well. It was uh, Brentford where he had, like, um, you know, sort of a, a role as, like, sort of caretaker manager and did particularly well. And I just always hoped he would get a decent gig. And he obviously has now with England. And, uh, yeah, he'll be a success. Great. And, uh, yes, he's a, a lovely, lovely man. Thank you for that. Uh, and now we, we're into really quite bonus points territory. Um, uh-huh. Naismith came off the bench. Oh, the... Gary, Gary Naismith, not, not Stephen Naismith. So Gary Naismith for a Chinese player. Oh, Li Tai. Li Tai, yes. Yeah. And he was playing beside? Wow. Um, well, if you say Carsley, Li Tai and Carsley would be in the middle. Mark okay. Pembridge might have played on the left. He Pembridge started on the that left. season. Mm-hmm. I would, I would guess so, yeah. So we've got Pembridge, Carsley, Li Tai. So we're missing, what, one from midfield, are we? Yep. Alexanderson, Nicholas Alexanderson, was he still no, there then? No, I'm going to try and pump his name to Google to give you a clue. Uh, well done to any Everton fan who has got this, because it's a tough one. Uh, he's uh, currently a manager of Skurvda AIK. What? <laughs> because he is, after all, Swedish. Although right. he was born in France. A Swede born in France. That's what the card says. Surely not Tobias Linderoff. Um, Tobias was... Linderoff. Yes. Did he play in that game? <laughs> That's what the card oh, says. Uh, spent a decade at Elsborg Youth Academy. Son of Anders Linderoff, who played in the World yeah. Cup. Uh, and when uh, Anders was playing for Marseille, Tobias was born there. He played a total of... Five times in that season, although he did star in the second Moy season, three to four. But yeah, yeah. Um, and then up front, uh, Rooney came on. But who was starting that game? Well, Kevin Campbell, I'm guessing, will have started that game. France, am I right? Kevin yep. Campbell, yep, yeah? yep, 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 absolutely. Gosh, Thomas Radzinski. You see, you've redeemed yourself. I knew you would. <laughs> Thomas Radzinski, actually, I remember um, I was covering a match up in Scotland once, a pre-season friendly, around about that era, and my old uh, colleague. Peter Jardine, it done firmly than it was. We were sat behind the goal, and Peter Jardine was asking me about Thomas Radzinski. And I said, oh, he's like lightning. I says, but his finishing is very, very dodgy. And as I was saying this, he was going clean through on goal. And I thought, oh, he's going to make me look absolutely stupid here. And as soon as I said that, he just blazed wide from six yards. And I says, there you go. That's something up. But yeah, yeah. so he scored some important goals for Everton did Thomas Radzinski. One against Southampton at home, I think, in that... In fact, he also scored the goal in the famous, was it the Wayne, remember the name, Wayne Rooney game? Oh, yes, game. he did, yeah. He, he scored the other goal in that game that often gets forgotten. No, that is that is one of those Liverpool pub quiz questions that I would set <laughs> were I to come up to a pub 
while I was holding a copy, just before I went to recline in the Dixie Dean Hotel, dixiedeanhotel.co.uk, get your room while it's hot. Uh, but I would be holding a copy of a grand old team to report. I hope you have a really enjoyable season. I don't think Everton will finish above fifth. But with that manager, miracles can happen. Um, but as long as your beloved Everton have a super season and sort out this Gilfie Sigerton situation, which seems, and the Fabian Delft situation, which both seem at this point to be derailing the season. But um, Mrs. Begovic will be galloping through the stables in celebration. Anytime soon. Let's certainly hope so. Let's hope so. David Prentice of the Liverpool Echo, thank you so much. Thank you. Just like the library! Just like the library!